The following audio is from a sermon series on the Lord's Prayer entitled, Pray Like Jesus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. If you're just joining us, uh, first of all, we're really glad you're here. Um, But you did pick a good week to come along and join us at Sacred City Church. We have just started a new sermon series, and we've been talking about one of the most basic elements of the Christian life. Something that every single person on, on the globe is naturally inclined toward. But when we set out to do that thing, it often feels unnatural, confusing. It's a discipline that takes a lifetime of work and effort and honing in on this. Yet there will never be a point in our life when we're finished with this task. What I'm talking about is prayer. Prayer is one of the most compelling and confusing aspects of the Christian life. You, you may have shared some similar experiences with that, where, where prayer has been something tremendous. You, you've seen it uh, take shape in a way that's just mind-blowing, but at the same time, it's been sort of confusing. Maybe it's felt flat. Uh, one of the instances in my life, uh, this was a couple years ago, I was having some health issues. Um, the doctors had identified that there were some irregularities in my kidneys and weren't really quite sure. I was, you know, I'm, I'm pretty young to have kidney issues, um, in pretty good health. I could probably afford to shave some weight, but uh, in good health overall. Um, and, and I got a phone call one day from my nephrologist, kidney doctor, and, and he told me uh, that he wanted me to come in with my wife really quickly, like within a day or two. Uh, now, usually it takes a couple weeks to get in with a nephrologist. He's a pretty busy guy. Uh, but for some reason, he wanted me to come in. And, and really, the context of this was a few days before that, I had a biopsy on my kidney. Um, and the results had come in. And because of the urgency of the appointment, I figured it was something kind of, seri- kind of serious, the fact that I had to bring my wife with me uh, on such short notice. And in the uncertainty of that, kind of unsure what was the news that was about to be had, that evening we met with our missional community. It happened to be uh, the night before um, the appointment. And we sat down with our missional community and we shared what was going on. I was definitely nervous. I had a lot of anxiety going into that. I didn't really know what was coming at me. And, and we talked through it and, and my missional community, they, they sat me in the middle of their circle and they put their hands on me and they prayed for me. Nothing about those prayers were extraordinary. They were just simple prayers request, requesting that God would be with us to, to watch over my body, to keep me healthy. And, and so we, we went to bed and, and woke up the next morning and head off to the doctor's appointment. Um, and we sat down in the doctor's office and, and he looked kind of, I mean, surprisingly, had, was a little more chipper than what I expected. That if I was really going to be expecting uh, not ideal news. And he, he sat us down and he said, well, you, you know what, when I called you in here, um, I had looked at the lab results and, and I thought that the diagnosis that I was going to give you was going to be not ideal. It was going to be treatment that would have been long and ongoing. It probably would have prohibited us from having any more kids beyond that point. Uh, and, and so he's like, it was a pretty serious deal. And he says, but uh, I revisited some of the labs and I had them retest. And in between the time that he called to schedule the appointment and the time that we sat down with the doctor, something had changed. I don't know what. He, he wasn't quite sure 
why the, read, the test results came back the way they did the first time. But he, he told us the good news is that things aren't as severe as what they seem to be. And that was a moment in my life where I was like, look at that, the power of prayer. What, what else could have explained something like that? And I've been fortunate in my position as a pastor to have several instances like this, not just in my life, but in the lives of others, where you step into a hospital room and, and in that moment, prayer seems to change something absolutely astonishing. But for every incredible encounter of prayer that we have, that I have, it seems that there are at least 2,000, if not 20,000, ordinary ones. Prayers and time in prayer that makes you wonder if anything was accomplished, if it was actually time well spent, if if anything really changed from that point on. It leaves you to be kind of confused. What is prayer doing? What is, what's the purpose of prayer? And when we zoom out here, we, we see that prayer isn't unique to Christianity. It's prayer isn't something that only Christians do. In fact, every single major religion has their own approach to prayer, even uh, someone who comes from a secularist worldview. But last week as we started our journey through Matthew 6 where Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, what Jesus tells us is that there is a distinctly Christian way to pray. There's a Christian way to pray and there's every other kind of way to pray. And before he teaches us what to pray, like what words to say and how to shape our prayers, he shows us how to pray, the posture that we take when we approach God. So Jesus gathers his disciples and he says, when you pray, don't make prayer a public spectacle. That's what the the religious hypocrites do. They stand on street corners, they beat their chest, they're out in public so that other people will see what they're doing and, and, and really for the purpose of just being seen by other people. It's about their own self image. Now, I I don't think many of us are going to go stand out on the corner of 16th Street after church and and beat our chest and lift our hands up in the air and pray to God, hoping that people will drive by and see us. But I do think that there are ways that we do this today. Like one of the ways we do this is through social media. We grab our cup of coffee, our Bible. Maybe we're sitting in a coffee shop down by the river, and, and we sort of position everything perfectly, take a snapshot, upload it on Instagram or Facebook, hoping that people will see it and just be impressed with how spiritual we are that day. The, the irony of that a lot of times is that we spend more time setting up the photo than we do actually praying. Again, could be motivated by self-interest, of, of image. And what Jesus tells us is is those people who who posture themselves for image reasons and praying, they get what they're after. Their reward is that people see them and are like, oh, okay. Your reward is the likes on Facebook, the double taps on Instagram. That's it. People see you. There's another way that Jesus taught us not to pray, and that's to not heap up empty words, to be long-winded, to have these aimless prayers where we're just babbling for minutes upon minutes. Now, the problem with this is not the 
the diligence or the amount or volume of prayer we have, but it's the ignorance of our prayers. So when Jesus tells us how not to pray, there's this question that spurs up within us, well, how then do I pray? And thankfully, Jesus continues in Matthew 6 to give us the answer, and what he gives us is the Lord's Prayer. That's what we know it as. And so here we are taking six weeks, we're in week two of six, of, of looking at the Lord's Prayer and going sentence by sentence, line by line, and really picking apart and trying to understand how Jesus is teaching or what Jesus is teaching to pray. Now chances are, um, being Midwesterners, people who are not quite in the Bible Belt, but we come from the blue-collar, hard work ethic, pretty solid um, mor morals. We, we probably are familiar with um, the Lord's Prayer. In fact, with our kids, we, we say it every night before bed. Um, but it's not just for those who are, are, are actually meaning prayer. We see it kind of pop up throughout. It's almost as if it, we kind of learn it like we learn the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, it's, I was watching a Netflix show about a football team, and every, before every single game, regardless of if these guys are churched or unchurched, they're praying the Lord's Prayer together. It's sort of a routine. It's a habit for them. And I think for a lot of us, praying the Lord's Prayer has turned into a routine or a habit, something that's just a matter of saying some words. But have you ever really stopped to meditate on what Jesus is teaching us to pray in the Lord's Prayer? Have you, have you ever thoughtfully prayed through the Lord's Prayer? Now, if we pray the Lord's Prayer with our brains turned off, it, it basically morphs into magical incantation or mindless recitation. We're just, it's a matter of heaping up empty words. When Jesus teaches us the Lord's Prayer, what he's showing us here is how to thoughtfully and and with a heart that is deeply connected and, and engaged, pray to God. He's teaching us how to engage our mind because in the Lord's Prayer, it is packed full of rich theology. And when we rightly understand this theology, it doesn't leave us cold and detached. This theology floods our hearts with affections for God. Now, when you look at Jesus' life, one of the things that's, that's absolutely noticeable and enviable of, of Jesus is that Jesus always had a thoughtful and heartfelt encounter with God when he prayed. Every time. Every time Jesus went to pray, he had this deep connection. He had an intimacy, a nearness to God. That's what he cultivated through prayer. I think deep down, beyond whatever request we go to God with, whatever we're asking him for in prayer, the thing that we most deeply want is that intimacy, that connection, that nearness to him. And that's precisely what Jesus is opening up for us when he teaches us the Lord's Prayer, that we too can pray like Jesus. So if you would open your Bibles with me today, uh, we're really just going to sit down in one sentence, verse 9. Uh, it's on page 473 in the Pew Bible in front of you, otherwise the words will be up on the screen. And this is in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, where Jesus says this. 
Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven. Now, in the first four words of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus shows us how to address God when we pray. Now, this is super important. Dallas Willard says, The address part of prayer is of vital significance because it is one of the things that distinguishes prayer from worrying out loud, which many have unfortunately confused with prayer. See, there's a difference in worrying out loud and actually pray. And the difference is we are addressing someone. And with the address, Jesus establishes the identity of that one that we pray to. And, and of course, when we think of prayer, we think, well, well, we're praying to God. But of the hundreds, literally hundreds of names and titles that are used for God throughout the Bible, Jesus tells us to pray our Father. Now, in our context, we're pretty familiar with this, right? When we hear someone praying, we say, our Father, that's pretty common. But for the original audience, the people that Jesus had huddled up here as he's preaching his Sermon on the Mount, this would have been absolutely shocking, absolutely unheard of, because what Jesus is doing in calling God his Father is approaching God in a very deeply personal and intimate way. Up till that point, God had been referred to as Father, but only in the corporate sense, never in the personal sense. So when the people of Israel were talking about God as Father, he is the Father of Israel, the Father of Abraham. Never this personal, familial relationship that Jesus is conveying here. And so what Jesus is doing here, when he's teaching his followers how to pray, he's taking this relationship with God to a whole new depth. Now, when you step back, we're looking right here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We're we're in chapter 6 of Matthew's gospel. By the end of Matthew's gospel, there are people who are killing Jesus. And one of the reasons why so many people wanted Jesus dead was because of this personal relationship that Jesus was so, it seemed like he was flaunting it before other people. Absolutely unheard of for these Jewish leaders. But Jesus says, when you pray, pray our Father. Now this is super shocking for the original audience, but this might also be shocking for us today as we pray or are told to pray our Father. Because the idea of calling God Father feels weird, usually due to the relationship that we have with our biological father. Now, some of us were blessed to have great dads, godly, um, loving, compassionate, shepherding fathers. There's some of us in the room who, who were not so fortunate that we grew up In homes where our father was negligent, abusive, distant, or or even absent altogether. For people who have had that experience with a biological father, when we're told to pray to God our father, there's almost a, a, a reaction in us that would say, you know what, no thanks. 
no thanks. I, I don't, I don't want to call him my father because there's so much baggage attached to that. I'd rather pray to my God because I know that God is going to be there when I pray, unlike my father who is absent. Because if God is my father like my biological father, that just means that God's another deadbeat. Now, if this is your story, I'm deeply sorry. And I know some of your stories. I know that there are people in this room who have that story, that, that, that you have shared that story with me. Maybe you've shared that story with your missional community, and there is heartache there. There are deep wounds. Because what your dad was supposed to do here on earth was to point to what your heavenly father was like to be present, to be the provider, a protector, a caregiver, a friend, a guide. Jesus gives us the opportunity to have that part of our story redeemed. He gives us the opportunity to encounter a heavenly father who is so much better than even the best biological father we might have. A father, a heavenly father. He tells us this, if you back up to verses, uh, let's see, five, and, five through eight, he, he shows us a couple of character, characteristics of God, our father. That he is in secret that we don't have to parade, we don't have to dance for our dinner, we don't have to work to get God's attention, we already have it. He's, he's there with us, he's present with us in the secret, quiet places. He tells us that we don't have to babble and, and, and really pull God and, and tug his arm to get something. He already knows what we need. He anticipates it. He's a good father who knows. So Jesus is inviting his followers into a deeper, sweeter relationship with God as their heavenly father. Now there's something deeply theological that's going on here when we say our father in heaven. By teaching us to pray, our Father, Jesus invites us into the communion, into the relationship that Jesus, God's only begotten Son, has with his own heavenly Father. Think of that. When Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father, we're not creating a new relationship. He's grafting us into the already established relationship that the one true Son of God shares with his heavenly Father. It's intimate, it's paternal, it's deeply satisfying. Now, only in the most general way is God everyone's father. Okay, we can talk about God as the father of creation. In that sense, he's everyone's father. But the fatherhood that Jesus is talking about here when we're praying our father is something that's built upon Christ himself. The reason that we can call God Father is because of our new identity that we receive through Christ. 
He's showing his disciples. Think about, think about who Jesus is talking to specifically. He's not out there speaking to the masses. He's speaking to the people who are following him. And he's showing them not only God's identity as father, but their identity as children. Now, Scripture tells us that because we are born under the curse of sin, we are by nature children of wrath. We are born with inherent desires to rebel against God. We execute on these desires by our own choices. And if you're a parent of a young child, this, this shouldn't be a surprise to you because you don't have to teach your kids how to disobey. They know how to do that. That's woven into their DNA. But there's good news for those of us who are children of wrath because God takes people, children who were destined for destruction under wrath, under the curse of sin, and by his mercy, he saves us by adopting us into his own family. That those who trust in Jesus are adopted into God's family. This is what John Chapter 1, verse 12 says, Yet to all who did receive him, that is Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And the only way you can enter into this relationship with God as your heavenly father is through the adoption that you receive through Jesus Christ. And in being adopted by Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, his, his perfect life on, on, on behalf of your imperfect life, he went and he took the wrath of God in your place so you could feel the embrace of the Father. And in doing that, he implants within you his own spirit, the spirit of God that cries out, Abba, Father, that there's this deep, intimate, longing connection that we have with God. Every time, R.C. Sproul says this, he says, every time we open our mouth and say, our Father, we should be reminded of the gospel, of our adoption, that we have been grafted into Christ and we've been placed into this intimate relationship with God. That we were once orphans and now we are claimed. And when you understand your adoption in Christ, when you understand that you now have the right to call God in heaven your heavenly Father that stirs our hearts with worship. Because this is something that we did not earn. This is something that Jesus gifted us with by his grace. And so, because of Jesus' work, we now have access to God, not just as this distant God off in the heavens, we have access to God as this loving, intimate, near Father. And by giving us the Lord's Prayer, God is giving us permission to come to him at any point, all hours of the day. Listen, who else, when a child is crying in the middle of the night, who do they go to? Right? They're going to their parents. They're going to mom or dad. God is giving us the same sort of intimate access that wherever we are, whatever's going on, he's wanting us to draw near to him, to, to be with him, to commune with him. Now the father, 
who claims us through adoption, through Jesus Christ. He is the one who all fatherhood is modeled after. Yet he is very much unlike any biological dad. And that is due to the fact that God is in heaven, our Father in heaven. Now, what this tells us, first, our Father, it, it has this intimate relationship, of, but also by telling us that he's in heaven, there's something cosmically transcendent about him. There's something that is both near to us, but also over all things. But as we think of God in heaven, it's easy for us to confuse transcendence with distance. And to help us understand, J.I. Packer says, when God is said to be in heaven, the thought is that he exists on a different plane, maybe in a different dimension, so to speak, than a different place. You see, God in heaven is always near to his children on earth. Now, there's this thing that kids do uh, on the playground. There's, there's this, like inter, this, com, this uh, competition that happens where, where there's, you hear it all the time. Well, my dad can beat up your dad. Trying to figure out who, whose dad is tougher, who's stronger, who, who's the baddest. And when Jesus tells us that our Father is heaven, he's telling us that there's no one that can stand against him. All power, all dominion is his. His will is perfectly executed. Our heavenly father isn't going to slip up. He, he doesn't wrong us. Our heavenly father always does what is good, right, and perfect. And so, again, in this sense, being drawn to the, the, the greatness, the grandness, the spectacular nature of our Father in heaven, this, again, compels us to worship. This theology stirs our heart with affections for this Father in heaven. And so what we've seen so far, that Jesus, by teaching us to pray, our Father in heaven, Jesus gives our relationship with God a new depth and a new height. The depth that we have a father who loves us so deeply that he would give up his only son for us. And a new height that God is in heaven. He's using his power, his might to bring us to where he is in prayer. And also for eternity. But in addition to this height and depth, God is, or Jesus is also giving our relationship with God a new width. Because he teaches us to pray, our Father. When Jesus teaches his followers to pray to God, he doesn't say pray like this, my Father in heaven. It's our Father in heaven. Now let me just ask you, just, just do a quick audit of your prayer life. How much of your prayer life is focused on you? How many times do you go to God with me, my, and I's? I'll be the first to tell you, it's pretty often for me. The very first word of the Lord's Prayer challenges our tendency toward individualism and isolation. 
It pushes back on one of the biggest driving factors of our culture. Now, if you think the Christian faith is about you and Jesus alone in your prayer room on a little island floating off into the heavens forever and ever, you are dearly mistaken. Because when you were adopted, so was a whole slew of other grace-needy people just like you. That we are adopted into a family together. Howard Wass, here's a, here's a great quote that I, I really enjoyed this week from Howard Wass and Willerman. They say, there are many religions that come to you through quiet walks in the woods or by sitting quietly in a library with a book or rummaging around through the recesses of your psyche. Christianity is not one of those. Christianity is inherently communal. A matter of life in the body, the church. Jesus did not call isolated individuals to follow him. To follow him, he called a group of disciples. In fact, when you go through the New Testament, one of the most used illustrations uh, the apostles use for the church is the illustration of a body, like like a physical body. The body is one but is made up of many members. It's not just you and Jesus. It's not just the head and a finger, right? Jesus is the head and you be the finger. No, no, no. You're attached to Jesus and the rest of the body. This is one of the reasons why we are so serious about church membership. Because church membership helps us define who the hour is when we pray our Father. Who are the people, not just in the church universal sense, in the general, uh, through all time and space, who are the people of the church, but in a localized sense. Who is the hour of our Father? So here Jesus teaches us to pray when he does. He gives our prayers width because prayer isn't just about me. Right? You can even go through the rest of the Lord's Prayer. There's not a singular noun in that prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation. The Lord's Prayer helps me pray for others who I'm doing life with as we follow Jesus together. Now, if you don't have people to do life with, to follow Jesus with together, we want to invite you into that. We want to invite you into joining one of our missional communities and and enjoy the delight and, and also the struggle. It's hard to walk in community with people, but it is a delight. It is something that Jesus intended for us to do. And as we do so, here's one really practical thing that I've been practicing this week as I've been studying this passage. Like I said, I have this tendency to pray for myself, um, probably like most of you. And as I've come to this passage, I've been trying to to rework the way that I pray, to to have that paradigm shifted. And and so what I'm doing, as as I'm praying for the things that I'm, I'm thinking of myself, I'm also thinking of people who might have the same needs as me. I've been sick this week. I've had a nasty head cold. 
I've been praying for health. But in, the pray, in praying for my own health, I've been praying for the health of three specific other people that I know had either major operations this week or were struggling with some sort of health thing. I'm already thinking about it. Why not just add other people into this? Or if you're a mom who's stuck at home and you're really struggling with your kids today, I guarantee you there's another mom that's in the same boat as you. Right? Lift them up in prayer. This is the way that Jesus teaches us to pray and praying for others by praying our Father. Now this wraps up the address that Jesus gives us to address who we're praying to, our Father in heaven. Now Jesus moves to the very first petition. And a lot of people look at this and they say, hallowed be your name. They think of this as sort of a, a, a prayer of adoration. Saying like, oh God, you are holy. Now that is absolutely true that God is holy, but this is not a, a prayer of adoration. This is a prayer of petition. It's a request. That God would be holy. Now, to, when we say hallowed be your name, when we hallow God's name, that's not what you do before you, you carve out a pumpkin, right? You're not, you're not hallowing a pumpkin. When we hallow God's name, it means to make it holy, to set it apart. And when we talk about God's name, it isn't the name G-O-D or, or Father. What we're talking about, when the Scripture talks about God's name, it's shorthand for God himself. And so, in a sense, this prayer to say, hallowed be your name, is the most basic prayer request that any of us could ask. Because God is already holy. We are just asking for us to be able to realize his holiness. For his holiness to be demonstrated, demonstrated to us. That God would be to us what he already is. For us to ask Hallowed be your name. We are asking God to demonstrate, to reveal his glory to us, his holiness, his complete otherness. That he would set himself apart from everything else in our life. That he would rise to the top. Now, think of this in terms of a, an Olympic podium. The person who has proven themselves to be the best is placed on the highest podium. Everybody else kind of falls in behind them, and then there's the general population who aren't even near the podium. This champion, the victor, is head and shoulders above the competition. Literally set out, set apart as the best, up on top. This athlete is supreme. Now, when we pray, hallowed be thy name, we are praying that God would rightly establish himself at the top of the podium in our heart. This prayer for God to be hallowed, to be set apart, to be above the number one thing in our life can mess your life up. All for the better. But, but it can definitely go in and rattle your cage, can shake things up a little bit. Because what we are praying when we say, hallowed be your name, is that everything else that is competing for that number one spot gets dethroned. Not, not even up on the podium. 
that God would be supreme in my heart. But here's the deal. I think a lot of times when we pray, we're not thinking about God's glory, about his holiness, about who he is. We're thinking about our own agendas. And the way that we typically pray is not hallowed be God's name, hallowed be God. We're thinking hallowed be my family. Hallowed be my paycheck. Hallowed be my comfort. Hallowed be my reputation. There's these other things that are competing for that number one spot. And and just out of ignorance, we're asking God that they would kind of take that place. Now, Now, I'm saying that we don't, I'm not saying that we don't pray for those things. But when our, sh- when our prayers are not shaped first and foremost by the holiness, the supremeness of God, then our prayers are disordered. What we pray for exposes what our hearts ultimately value. And most often they are good things that are wrongly ordered. And so when we go to God, And pray, hallowed be thy name. We are asking that he would come into our heart and do some major reconstruction. In fact, when when we're, if we're praying, hallowed be my comfort, hallowed be my kids, hallowed be whatever, it, it shouldn't be a shock to us that some of our prayers seem unanswered. In fact, it's actually God's grace that some of those prayers go unanswered. Because what he's trying to do is carve out a path for him to have that number one spot. And so in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus helps us to rightly order what we love, to dethrone the idols, to dethrone the good things that we've elevated to a place that's not theirs, and to set God as number one in our hearts. But there's also something else that happens. We're not just praying that God would be revered as holy When we pray, hallowed be thy name, we're also praying that God would set us apart. Because of our adoption in Christ, we now carry the family name. We're told in the New Testament that we're ambassadors for Christ. We are representatives of God. We are salt and light. For God to be hallowed in your heart means that your life will be sanctified too. Now here's, in simple terms, here's what that means. That you become like your daddy. Now what kid who's loved and cherished and has that intimate and joyful, playful bond with their father doesn't want to be more like their dad? Now in order for us to really mean this, this prayer, honestly, hallowed be thy name, we must detach our idea of holiness from the, the pagan idea that holiness is boring, unpleasant, and joyless. See, our paradigm, our paradigm for holiness has to be shifted from do's and don'ts to what is beautiful, good, and true. I think that's one of the great lies that Satan wants us to, to, to believe, that, that holiness is dull. There's actually something better than God out there, so go ahead and and give it a shot. Or or maybe don't even neglect God altogether, but you know what? It's okay to have God plus this. It's okay to to, to share the number one spot in your heart with God and your job. But to do that empties God of his holiness in your perception. 
Again, for God to be holy in our lives, in our heart, it means that he is supreme, that his glory is evident in and to us. It means that we are filled with the delight of our adoption, basking in the Father's love. It means that we can be free from anxiety because we have a heavenly Father who knows what we need before we ask it. It means that we're honoring God by honoring the gospel family that he's placed us in. And for God to be holy, for him to be, to, to be viewed as he actually is, is not only about his glory, but it's for our good. See, our good is tied up with God's glory. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And to pray like Jesus prayed means that we see God as the way Jesus sees him. Jesus allows our eyes to be opened up to the reality of who God is. Our holy father in heaven. And by giving us the Lord's prayer, Jesus is helping us toward that end. that we find a father who has adopted us by grace through faith. That we find a father who is worthy of all worship because he is supremely beautiful, glorious, gracious, and holy. And as we glorify him, as we acknowledge what he is like, we get to enjoy him in this deep and intimate relationship that Jesus gives us. Now listen, a trait of really understanding that you've been adopted, that that you really understand that God is your Father in heaven, is that we become a praying people. Prayer is how we foster that relationship. Prayer is how we spend time with our Heavenly Father. Prayer is how, not, not just how we go to Him with requests, but prayer is how we are transformed into His likeness. And by Praying the Lord's Prayer, we learn how to pray more truthfully. We learn how to make a hard ask. Right? For, for, to give up that number one spot to God might be a hard thing. I'm guaranteeing you, for everyone, it's a hard thing. There's always something competing, but it's worth it. Prayer is how we surrender to God in that way. And as we see God hallowed, as we see him made holy, that his glory is displayed in and through us, we can trust that the Father in heaven, the one who adopted us, not because of our own merit, but because of the work of his true and only son, the one who began a good work in you will bring that to completion. So one day we stand with our Father who is in heaven, And we too will be like him. We will be made holy. Jesus, we're thankful that you have not left your followers without a language, a vocabulary, a framework to pray, to understand the gift that you've given us in the gospel. We thank you for the Lord's Prayer. I pray, Father, that you would would posture our hearts in a way where we meditate on these words that we really explore the depths of them and and engaging our minds would our hearts be filled with affections for you. We're thankful, Father, that 
above all, your affections are for us. That your love was set on us even when we were enemies of you. That you sent your son to, to bear our sin and our shame, to take upon your wrath so that we might experience the embrace of our heavenly father. I pray, Father, this would be more than just a theological ascent, that this would be an experiential thing for your followers, that we would know what it's like to have an intimate relationship with you. And that's something that no words can describe, no sermon can cultivate. This is something that we are completely dependent upon you to bring about through your spirit. So would you teach our inner spirits through your Holy Spirit to cry out, Abba, Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.